Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. We gather every Sunday at 9.30 and 11 o'clock and would love for you to join us. If we can do anything for you at all, please email us at hello at cornerstonetulsa.org. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The teaching text for today comes from Hosea 2, 14 through 20. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the Valley of Acre a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land, so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your extravagant love, um, as we've already prayed this morning, and um, I thank you that you draw people um, who are in rebellion, who are running from you, who don't recognize the truth of who you are, and I thank you that you've done that with every person that you've brought to salvation here in this room, and um, that you are you still um, pursue people, and and you deserve our love. You deserve our intimate relationship, our adoration. And so, God, I just ask that you would continue to transform us with your word, that you would um, continue to woo us and, and teach us to respond. And I pray, Father, that we would come to you with hearts um, that truly want to know you and want to love you more. And um, I thank you, Jesus, that knowing you is, is eternal life. And um, so I just pray, Father, that, that today, as John brings your word, that you would bless him, bless his lips to give your word in truth and honesty. Bless the ears in this room to hear, Father, that we would be good receivers of your truth and of your love, and that we would respond appropriately. Um, teach us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Ashley. Hey, good morning. It's so good to see you. Marcus, Abernathy, it's lovely to see you. Uh, glad that y'all are here today. I hope that you're coming in today uh, feeling encouraged, feeling nourished, and just uh, built up. Or maybe you're here today and you're just worn out and discouraged and you've dealt with disappointment this week and life has just kind of beaten you up. That happens. Uh, lots of us have been there or maybe even will be there this week. Uh, I hope that maybe you're here with your mom today and Mother's Day is a good day. Uh, maybe mom is... Is, has passed and she's out of the picture, or maybe motherhood is, is kind of a sore subject. Uh, I don't know if that's you. I don't know if you're coming in today and you feel like you're among your people, or maybe you're coming in and you don't know anybody and your blood pressure is slightly elevated just being in this room. Uh, I don't know if you believe the things that we believe, or maybe you vehemently disagree with us. But this morning, I don't think that anybody is here by mistake. The Holy Spirit has been the one drawing us in toward each other and toward Jesus, and so I want to say 
to each and every one of you in the name of Jesus, you're welcome. I'm glad that you're here. It's good for us to get together and open up uh, the scriptures. If you've not been around, or even if you have, it's a good reminder. The mission of our church is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. Let's read that together. A community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. This morning, I want to ask you a really simple question, uh, but it's not a simplistic question. And it's what is the gospel? That central word there. What is the gospel? Now, tons of us have followed Jesus for a long time. Maybe you know how to answer that question, or maybe you, like, you should know how to answer that question. I have a couple Bible degrees. You'd think I'd be able to answer that question. But this question of what is the gospel has been one that has vexed me and has really piqued my curiosity for the last 16 or 17 years and given me an active pursuit trying to get my brain around what do we mean when we say that word? Uh, what does it mean to believe in the gospel? And so there are lots of different ways that you could answer it, and it's, but it can be kind of confusing. I've found that every time I've tried to answer it, the, my answer doesn't quite fit in a box. I can't give a comprehensive answer so that I feel like I fully understand what the gospel actually is. And I've come to believe that that, that reality, that, that, I, that I can't fully explain it or define it, is okay. And not just okay, but it's actually God's design. Because the gospel was supposed to blow our minds. It was supposed to be something beyond our conception. Which unsurprisingly, in the New Testament, there's a consistent way that the biblical authors describe the gospel. And it's using the word mystery. That the gospel is a mystery. I want to give you five examples. First, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 Beyond all question, the mystery from which two, true godliness springs is great. Jesus appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Here's another one. Pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. Next one, in Ephesians, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Next one, in 1 Corinthians, no, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden, that God destined for our glory before time began. And finally, in Romans, now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, and then the biblical author continues. Uh, more times than I've even cited here, the gospel is described as a mystery. It's something that we can't comprehend and understand unless we have help from the outside. And to explain this mystery... The Bible gives us these metaphors so that we can begin to get our brain around it. Well, the gospel is bigger than any of us can understand, but it's kind of like this. Or imagine a scenario kind of like that. Everything that God has done to rescue us through the person of Jesus is kind of like this. So I want to give you a couple of examples from the Bible. And notice in each of these examples, there's some sense of rebellion or plight. Somebody has found themselves in a situation beyond their control. There's rebellion or plight. Uh, there's some kind of complicity in that rebellion. My hands have, are, 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 are dirty. They're covered in blood. I've been part of this rebellion. Or there's a sense of like, I, I have been put in a situation beyond my control. I had nothing to do with it, but I'm in this situation. And then finally, in each of these, there's some kind of unexpected reversal of fortune. So there's rebellion or plight. 
There's helplessness or complicity. And then there's some sense of a reversal of fortunes that's based on grace. So the first one uh, you may have heard of, maybe not in these terms, is, is penal substitution. This is an idea like we see in Isaiah 53, where we are the guilty. Picture yourself in a, in a courtroom before God. Susan, we can put up the first one there. You can see yourself in a courtroom before God, and you are the one deserving of judgment. And Jesus steps in and says, no, I'm going to receive the judgment or the punishment that they deserve, and we go free. Isaiah 53 says, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. The gospel was kind of like a courtroom scene where we're the guilty one who gets to walk away innocent. Another one we see in Colossians chapter 1 is like a, a ransom scenario where we've been kidnapped by the kingdom of darkness and we're being held against our will. But he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son. It's like we're victims of kidnapping, but the gospel is like Jesus rescuing us and bringing us back to a place of safety. The third one comes from Colossians 2, and theologians will call this understanding of the gospel Christus Victor. Jesus is, is the victor. It's the idea that there are, are dark powers that have oppressed us, and we are living underneath these oppressive forces. But through the death and resurrection of Jesus, those oppressive forces have been thrown off of us, and we are liberated. Paul said in Colossians, he's disarmed the powers and the authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. So you can imagine a group of people who are living under occupation and they're being oppressed and someone comes in to deliver them and then suddenly they're free. The gospel's kind of like that. Jesus tells the story in Luke chapter 15 about a kid who insulted his father, took his inheritance early and ran off to a faraway country, blew it on, on wild living. And then when he decided he'd come to the, the end of his rope, he was going to go back and he's practicing his I'm sorry speech on his way to dad. And dad has an unexpected response and he throws a, a party, puts a ring on his finger, a robe on him, sandals on his feet. They say, my son was dead and now he's alive. The gospel is kind of like a prodigal's return and they're being welcomed with celebration. Jesus in Luke chapter 7 tells a story of two people who are greatly in debt. One owed a lot of money, another owed a little money. He said, which one of them, when their debt was forgiven, loved more? Well, the one who was forgiven more. There's an image of us being in debt to God because of all the things that we've done to screw up his world and our lives, and he has forgiven our debt. The gospel is kind of like a person being freed a year of jubilee. Their, their debt has been paid for. Jesus in John chapter 3 told, gave an interesting metaphor when he, in a conversation with Nicodemus. He said to Nicodemus, no one can, be, can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born from above or born again. We're dead in our sin. You need to be reborn. And Nicodemus does not get what that's like. You have to be born from above, reborn. This is the metaphor Jesus gives us in John 3. But the favorite of all metaphors of Jesus in the Gospels was that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a picture that we, have, we're, we are trapped in a kingdom of darkness. We, don't, we can't see the light. We don't know the truth. And God's kingdom is breaking into our world. And it's, if you could picture like overlapping circles, God's kingdom is breaking into ours. And this little sliver of light, we see hope. The gospel is kind of like that, a slowly infiltrating kingdom of God. All of these give us a picture. 
Each of this gives us a picture to like help our imagination get around what on earth the gospel is, the, the mystery that God has been unfolding in the world, the way in which he's reversing our fortunes in a way that's based on grace. Now, who, though, we're, though we're guilty of sin, he's letting us walk away unpunished. Though we've been kidnapped by sin, he's liberated us and rescued us by the Son. We who are oppressed by the forces of darkness, those forces that have forever plagued us, have been uh, overturned. We who were the prodigal runaways have been welcomed back home by a loving Father. We who are in debt because of our sin have had that, that slate wiped clean. We who are born with an addiction to sin have been reborn by the Spirit. And we who are trapped in a kingdom of darkness have been liberated because the kingdom of God is at hand. And each of these gives us a little unique angle, like seven different people looking at a work of art, describing it in a different way. Each of these gives us a unique angle on getting our brains around that question, what is the gospel? And this morning, we're going to, get, we're going to be given another metaphor that opens up our imagination to understand what the gospel is. And with this, this picture given to us through the prophet Hosea, how many of you are attempting to go through a year of the Bible? Okay, how many of you are like six weeks behind? <laughs> okay, we're getting into some tricky territory as we go through the prophets, and you may have been confused, like that we're skipping around a little bit, and that's by design. You didn't miss anything. We're trying to do things in, in chronological order as we can and some natural breaks and groupings, and we found ourselves in a, in a really interesting book, uh, the, the book of the prophet Hosea. And uh, Hosea was a prophet at the time that the, the kingdom of Israel was winding down. So if you'll recall, there were 12 tribes, 12 sons of Jacob, and those tribes split into the north and the south. Most of them were in the north. And uh, the north was on this expedited plan for exile. They were uh, rebellious. They had all kinds of idols. And God warned them again and again through the prophets, this is going to end poorly for you. Hosea comes as a prophet at the tail end of Israel's life before exile. And Hosea is come to, come to give this unique message. All of the prophets came to give the people a message from God. A lot of times it was through the spoken word. And so we have the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Haggai, all of those. But the other thing that they sometimes did is they took, the prophets took these symbolic prophetic actions. They did stuff that, was, that gave a visual metaphor for what God was trying to say to them. One of my personal favorites, uh, the prophet Isaiah walked around buck naked for two years. <laughs> and I think like, that have to, had to have been before like indecent exposure laws or something. But he was saying, like, you're going to be led off naked into exile if you don't change your behavior. Jesus entered this prophetic tradition and had, took symbolic prophetic action. Can anybody think of what it, when it was? Symbolic prophetic action against the temple. Anybody? It was when he cleansed the temple. In all four Gospels, he goes in and he's kicking over tables. He's coming in as a prophet saying, a judgment is going to come on this place and the temple is going to be done for or it's going to be better redefined. And within a lifetime, the temple in Jerusalem was gone forever. Similarly, God uses Hosea to, to act out this living prophetic act of judgment in front of the people, really an act of good news, but it was a pretty unusual one. This is the beginning of Hosea. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. 
You think being Hosea, what a weird commandment by God. Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. And uh, God and Hosea obeys what God says. He's saying, go make a covenant with a person that you know is going to be unfaithful to you. Have children with that person, ensuring that you're going to have some kind of joint future together through these kids. And Hosea obeys. And because of how this woman is introduced, we get her description, a promiscuous woman or a prostitute before we learn her name, Gomer. You, you don't ex- have very high expectations for how things are going to go with her. And predictably, even though she marries Hosea and has children with Hosea, before long she goes back to the life that she's been the most comfortable with. She's engaging as a prostitute. And God's giving Hosea this unique experience of understanding what it's like to be faithful to someone who's been unfaithful to you. Because that's exactly what Israel has been toward God. He continues showing them love, having children with them as the generations go on. And Israel continues to be unfaithful to them. Hosea is understanding, oh, this is how God must feel. Hosea loves his wife. Hosea has put down roots with his wife. Much like God loves his people, God has put down roots with these people. God wants to have a future with these people, made a covenant with them. Hosea's wife has been perpetually unfaithful to him, just like Israel was perpetually unfaithful to Yahweh, and much like we are unfaithful time and again to God. And Hosea, like God, experiences that broken heart, that sense of love scorned or rejected or mocked. And it makes me think of the hymn. Every time I sing it, I think this is just the perfect song, uh, Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone, I have this proclivity toward leaving the God that I love. Have you ever asked yourself the question, like in a moment of frustration with yourself, why am I like this? Why do I keep doing this? A pattern of thought or a behavior that you engage in, a sin that like you told yourself 999 times that you were never going to do this again, and yet you find yourself doing it the thousandth time. You ask yourself, why am I doing this? Prone to wander, I feel it. I feel that sense of despair or frustration or hopelessness in the core of my person. You do it, you regret it, then comes the self-loathing, then comes the depression, then comes the shame. Why am I like this? There's this scene in the Wes Anderson movie, The Darjeeling Limited. Most of the movies I recommend, I am not formally recommending as your pastor, by the way. Just put that asterisk on any movie I ever say. But there's this scene in the movie The Darjeeling Limited where one character says to his brother that he's planning to leave his wife. And the brother asks, why would you do that? He said, I don't know. I love my wife. Maybe it has to do with how we were raised. And there's this sense that he's behaving in a way that's hardwired into his person because of his early experiences. It's a great, great image for us, of all of us, why we continue to engage in these behaviors that we know are destructive. There's a sense that we've inherited this proclivity toward our own destruction, this tendency to sin, to leave the God that we love, to go off course and to be distracted. And if that's the reality which all of us know at those moments of despair and frustration about who you are, the question for us and the question in the context of Hosea is what is God going to do with us? What's God's response to unfaithful people like you and me and like this woman? Hosea's wife predictably strays. 
She goes back into a life of prostitution, and God speaks to Hosea again with new instructions about how he's to behave. This is Hosea 3. The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again. Though she's loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. And Hosea says, So I bought my wife for 15 shekels. Hosea purchased his wife. He's going to do whatever it took to do to win her back. He didn't stone her as the Levitical law permitted him to do. Instead, he wooed her. He lured her back to to being his wife. And this is precisely what God was going to do with his rebellious people of Israel. This is uh, Hosea 2, the text that Ashley read for us. God says, I'm going to allure her. Hear the tenderness in that voice unexpectedly tender. I'll lead her into the wilderness, into this place of uncertainty, and speak tenderly to her. And there in the wilderness, that place of destitution, she will respond to me as in the days of her youth, like when we fell in love at the beginning. You can almost hear the text say, as in the days she came up out of Egypt and everything was so fresh. And in that day, declares the Lord, you'll call me my husband. You'll no longer call me my master. And it continues... I will betroth you to me forever, betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and then you will acknowledge the Lord. Instead of the judgment that the people deserved, said, I'm going to lure her, I'm going to woo her, I'm going to invite her back uh, to love me and to know who she is in view of my love, talking about Israel. Inviting her back to that true place of safety and belonging and identity in the loving arms of her family. It was love that God was using to compel his people back to him. And it was love that Hosea was using to call that adulterous woman, that wife of his, back into relationship with him. And this is the new gospel metaphor that Hosea unexpectedly gives us. That all of us are the wayward spouse. Isaiah 53, all we like sheep have gone astray, each to our own way. All of us are the the wayward spouse, the adulterous spouse who perpetually returns to other lovers and to lesser lovers. But through Jesus, God is wooing us back with that message of love, that alluring message, come back home. We know who you really are. We want to tell you where you really belong. And this love shown in Jesus has an effect on who we are and how we see the world. It has an actual effect on our lives. What's so cool is Paul picks up this metaphor of God's people as being the adulterous wanderers who've strayed from the covenant and picks it up and redeems it and shows us what the love of God does in the life of a person. This comes from Ephesians 5. As Paul's explaining how husbands and wives ought to love each other, he says, "'Husbands, love your wives.'" just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And hold this image in your mind of Hosea's wife, Gomer, who's, who's adulterous, who's wandering away, who has, uh, her sin is, is always before her. Love her as Christ loved the church and cleansed her, made her radiant, made her holy, washed her, presented her without stain or wrinkle, holy and blameless. And it gives us this picture that the love of God in the life of a person washes them, 
makes them holy, cleanses, makes us radiant, treats us as blameless. He treats us adulterers as if we had never strayed and loves us back to innocence, as if we had never been stained or strayed in the first place. Timothy Keller said, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are. But by His grace, He doesn't leave us where we are. And this is what the love of Jesus in a person does. It transforms them. It rewrites their story. It loves them back to a place of innocence. And you may have lived in a large part of the meta-narrative of your life in a, in a position of recurring shame and self-loathing and hatred, or maybe for you there's a, a corner of your life that's been unwelcome to the love of God, that everyone else in your life would see you as a follower of Jesus, as a person who's got you know, their stuff together, but you know in that quiet corner of your life there's a place that has remained unexamined, that has been quarantined away from the love of God, and that's a place where you experience loneliness and shame and isolation. But God loves you so much. Like Hosea loved his adulterous wife, God loves you and God loves us so much that he doesn't want to leave us alone in our shame. He wants to invite, he's inviting you to make a forever home with him, a place where you know your identity is one who is loved and forgiven and redeemed. You know your purpose. You have a, a deep sense of belonging. You're one who's been loved and forgiven and rescued and reborn and made alive in Christ. But we don't experience that sense of forgiveness, that inner washing without the deep acknowledgement that we need it. We can't be rescued if we think that life in chains is like all that we could ever hope for. You can't be reborn until you know that you're dead in your sin and you have a sense of despair about it. And you can't be wed to Christ until you have accepted his invitation of betrothal. Uh, on, on Maundy Thursday, Nina asked this great question in her lesson, was just, are you letting yourself be loved by God? And maybe you would think that the, the things that you've done or thought about or not done or the things that have been done to you disqualify you from the love of God. Are you allowing yourself to be loved by God? Have you experienced in a, in a transformative way on the inside of you like that God has taken up residence inside of you? In Romans chapter 8, Paul says God's spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. Do you have on the inside of you this kind of like assurance that you can't explain? The sense within you that you're God's child, that you are deeply loved. This is totally random, but one of the, one of the like, ways in my life that I experience that inner witness of the Spirit, are there some times where we're singing songs or I'm in the car where I just feel like this, like, thank you, Father, like, well up from my heart? Do you have a sense on the inside of you that you are loved by God, that you are a child of God? Do you have on the inside of you this sense that you belong to him, that he loves you, that you have inherent worth apart from the things that you have done to screw up and apart from the things that you will do to screw it up? Do you have that sense on the inside of you that you are loved? And you can know this love. We can know this love. John Wesley, who was the founder of Methodism, was a missionary before he experienced this love in a way that changed his life. And it was coming into a place of deep, deep despair that he cried out to God. The Holy Spirit took up residence 
in him, and he had this deep assurance, I have been forgiven, I've been adopted, I am loved. Maybe you would say in a general way that you know that you're loved by God. But as as I referenced earlier, there's a sense that there are parts of your life that you have set are off limits, that you've quarantined, places where you think maybe God can't have access to that, or the cost of inviting God into that place of your heart is so overwhelming that you couldn't possibly say yes. I want to encourage you this morning to hear the gentle voice of God, that alluring voice saying, come home to me. I'm safe. I long for you to be well. I long for you to be adopted. I long for you to experience that sense of inner washing, to love you back to a posture, a position of innocence. What a gift that Jesus wants to give us, his innocence. In just a minute, we're going to like, literally receive in our bodies this symbol of the love of God that's for us as we gather at communion. We receive how Jesus was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. And in the vision, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. The sense of if my life does not fully enter your life, we can't do this thing. If my love has not fully permeated your being, bringing light to all of those dark spaces, you're going to continue to live in darkness. He wants to nourish us on the life of Jesus. And so I just simply ask you this morning, do you know that he loves you? Are you allowing him to love you? Are you allowing that love to give you a new identity and a new sense of purpose and to light up those places inside of you that have grown dark? And if you don't, you can. Let's pray together. We're all complicated human beings. Some of us are, are great at hiding. Some of us are great at deceiving. And so there are times in which we've deceived ourselves about areas of our life that have, we've said to God and said to ourselves, like, we're just, I'm just going to keep this to myself. But maybe in, in just being in the, the quiet of God's presence today, you would acknowledge that there's a part of you that you've kept to yourself Uh, that you've not allowed access to the love of God. And today, if you would just name the sin that you're dealing with, the struggle, the anxiety, the fear, whatever's tripping you up, in the quiet of your own heart, that thing that you have withheld from the love of God, hear him this morning just alluring you, compelling you, and inviting you to let go. And so maybe you would say in the quiet of your own heart, God, I give you access to this part of me. Just in the quiet of your own heart, if that's you, just say that. God, I give you access to this part of my life. I have not yet trusted you with this part of me. Today, I open up the door of my heart to give you access. Shine your light in the dark places where I feel disqualified and unlovely. Would you love me? Would you assure me of my identity? And maybe you, you're here today and you honestly cannot remember a time in which you said yes to the love of God in your life. And there's been a sense for you that you're like looking everywhere to find a sense of identity or purpose or okayness. And in the, the, the candor of your own heart, you just admit there's never been a time in which I've willfully given access to God to my whole life, invited God to, to take up residence on the inside of me. 
Maybe you can, you can never remember a time in which you invited God's love to be made real in your heart. And maybe today you would just say, God, would you take up residence in my heart? Would you forgive me of my sins? Would you adopt me into your family? Would you love me back into relationship with you like Hosea? Would you make this, re- this love known in a way that like in the core of my being, I believe that it's true? It would give me a sense of worth and purpose and identity and belonging. And for all of us this morning, no matter where you are on the spectrum, if you're a person who's mature in your relationship with Jesus and the love of God is defining who you are or you're crossing the starting line today, as we come forward and we receive communion, this is the good news that Jesus has died to rescue all of us. Jesus died so that all of our debt could be paid, so that we could, the, the oppressive forces could be thrown off so we could be reborn. We could be loved out of our adultery into faithfulness with the God who loves us with an everlasting love. And as you receive the, the bread and the juice and you receive it in your body, say, God, thank you for all that you've done. May I live into this. May I be nourished on this and may I never look to other lovers. We pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.